Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I mean, there's sometimes where people just get angry and leave. And I would rather that they got angry and leave than stay there and ruin the whole show for everybody else. Yeah, but, you know, you're an equal opportunity offender, though. Yeah. Like, you hit but the, someone the called me people, out the, the other Jew night. Now, a woman goes, this is offensive, it's racist, and you're dealing with stereotypes. And I go, okay, uh, more. Tell me. <laughs> she goes, well, you made fun of the Jews, the blacks. And I said, well, I'm a Jew, so can I do that? She goes, the blacks. And I go, are you black? She goes, I'm Dominican. I go, all right, I'll try and come up with some Dominican jokes because right now you just seem offended by what offends you. You don't give a shit that I'm making fun of Jews because I'm a Jew, but what offends you is what I shouldn't be saying. So I called her out on it, and then sure enough, three minutes later, she's laughing at more racist jokes because I doubled down, I lean in, and she's laughing. And so I stopped and I go, you're a hypocrite. You just called me out and you said it's not funny, so why are you laughing at it? right now and she was stumped right because and she again, didn't get it it was fake outrage so Aaron Berg you broke the world record and the documentary is out or coming out October 15th you did 25 comedy sets in one night which for anybody who doesn't know is incredibly difficult for so many reasons maybe Maybe just list some of the reasons why this is difficult, why this is like an amazing, and it's like a world record. A world Nobody record. else will do it. Almost doubled the old world record, which was 13. It's so difficult because so many things. It's so hard to get 25 sets scheduled. You have to be in at uh, a lot of clubs. People have to like you, have to want to work with you. You have to run around this crazy city on a Saturday night and be in 25 different locations. Even though some of the shows were at the same location, they were never back-to-back. -back. Because never... you can't do back-to-back, -back, right? It's, they would be the same show. Yeah, or like I couldn't do the end of a New York Comedy Club show and then wait for the next show to start. There just wasn't enough time. So Right, because there might be like a half hour or 45-minute yeah. break. Where they have to get people in and get people out. So 25 locations I had to be at. Uh, I had a minivan. The van had the windshield wipers break down in the middle of a huge rainstorm. Then we couldn't take the van for a couple spots. So I had to take cabs. I had to run on foot. Uh, anyone could drop in at any moment on a Saturday and throw the whole schedule off. So even though I had all these times scheduled throughout the night, I had to be able to call audibles and be able to shift and be really fluid. And, and there was this attitude that I had that was very prevailing going into it which was that in New York comedy, everything works out. So even if you're late, there'll be another comic standing by that can go on for 10 minutes. Or if you're early, somebody can shift. So that was the mental attitude I had going into it. And I was very positive going into it. And and you mentioned a couple of things that are interesting. One is the clubs all had to like you. That that had to take just years of building. I think I'm, I'm always interested not only in the causes of success, but the causes of failure. So... You know, you spent years not only obviously developing the comedy skills, but you had to get along with people. You had to be diplomatic and 
and work with all these business owners. Yeah, and I think a lot of that is patience and understanding. Like uh, a prime example is where we're recording this right now. When I first moved to New York, I had a manager that got me a showcase at Caroline's, and I went on at Caroline's and like, oh, you're great. We'll start working you. And he got me a showcase at the comic strip back when the comic strip was like a really good club. And I went on at the comic strip and did great, and I started working there. Then, so I'm in at these two great clubs, and I'm meeting people. Andy Pitts is a guy I met, and he used to work a lot in the city. And then I came to Stand Up New York to do a showcase, and it was on a Saturday, I think maybe 7 p.m. or something. And I did my showcase, and it went okay. It wasn't the best set, and I came off. And uh, I went to the manager. I go, do you want to see again, or should I? And he goes, nah, we got a lot of guys, but thanks. Oh, my God. So it was amazing to see. But then I couldn't let that be like, oh, well, fuck that club, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was Greg. Greg was the guy that was working at the time that, you know, was just like, yeah, you're not for us. He didn't dig what I was doing. I think it was a bit too dirty for his liking at the time. And then, uh, sure enough, years later, you know, Greg and I are, are really good friends. And we get along great. Yeah, so and it was and just, not only is Stand Up New York <clears throat> featured in 25 sets, yeah. this documentary, but uh, you're here all the time. Mm-hmm. And I love it. So I think you can, you don't take it personally and you just go, okay, it's going to, it'll happen when it happens. And that, that's one of the things about comedy too, is like everything that you feel like you're supposed to get, you really get a couple years later. You so don't like, get it when you're ready for it. Like, what do what do you what did you feel you were supposed to get? Like when you were you know eight nine years in? Because you've been like what are you like 17, 18 years? I'm in? eighteen years in. So when I first moved here, I'm like I should be working at every club, and of course that took you know two or three years at least. Uh, you know you're like oh I should be making a living, I should be making this much, I should have a fan base. All that stuff just takes longer than you think it would take. It's not when you're ready for it. Uh, artistically, it just happens when it happens because there's always people ahead of you. There's always people behind you. That's that's one of the biggest things in stand-up is you can't compare yourself to these other comics because well, you get so miserable. Yeah, what's the, what's, the, what's the most miserable you've been? Well, I used to look at people and I'd be like, oh, they've got an HBO special. or it's a, And somebody that wasn't that far enough away artistically, like, say, a Jim Jeffries who stylistically, I worked the same format. You know, I was doing long-form stories for a long time, and they were dirty, and they were controversial, And I was, but Jim Jeffries had done tons of HBO specials and was incredibly famous, and I was toiling away as an unknown nightclub comic. So you, you can't... You, getting angry about that doesn't put a fire under your ass. It, it When you go, oh, this fucking guy's got this, 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 you think it's going to be like, well, I got to work harder to get that. It doesn't do that. It just puts you in this shell of negativity, and, and it's not a good place to create from. So how did you how do you avoid that shell? Because I think a lot of, not only comedians, but in every line of business, go through that. I think there's always the compare despair. Yeah, and, and it's a horrible place to be. How do you avoid... You keep your eyes on your own paper, which is like an expression like uh, Amy Hawthorne, who's the booker at New York Comedy Club now. She says that a lot. It's like, keep your eyes, just focus on what you're doing. And, it, and it's very insular. And so far as if you do that work, usually writing cures everything. So if you're frustrated, if you write, you'll either get new jokes out of it or it'll vent. And that helps you move to the next level. But another way to beat it is to be like, okay, let me just focus on what I want and what I want to do. Well, well, when you personalize that, it it makes it much more achievable. So now it's like even though I know people that are getting HBO specials and stuff, it doesn't seem the same as it used to. Ten years ago, you thought HBO was the be-all and end-all of comedy specials, and now it's not. There's There's more power sometimes behind putting your own thing out. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, and I want to I want to talk about the documentary itself. But one thing I'm curious about is is TV still relevant at all for a comedy special? Like, why not just put, for instance, this documentary Twenty Five Sets on YouTube, where it would probably get you know just as many views, if not more? Right. I think we're still trying to make money off of it. So I think that this the streaming model. I mean, this is the first thing I've made and put out. So we're hoping to make money off of it. I don't know if if after a year, if a ton of people see it and we haven't seen any money, then I'll be like, oh, okay, why are we even doing that? Let's just put something out. But there's a legitimacy that's added to it. I feel like Amazon has made 
a good move in the past year where they're focusing more on putting comedy specials out and, and good comedy specials. You know, they did Gaffigan. Uh, I think Alana Glazer had one. David Cross. Comedy Dynamics is making some big moves, and they're the distributor of this one. And they're also, they're getting into TV now, too. So it's like, okay, maybe this can lead to something else. So th that's my thoughts on that. And I'm also very happy that we had somebody that believed in it enough to be like, oh, more people should see this, you know? And so, again, like, you were saying what's difficult about doing 25 sets. I think also the the wear and tear. Like, you know, by the third or fourth set, you must be tired or, it took or tired and and maybe you don't even remember did i use this joke on this set already did i use this joke on the last set it took me until about 15 or 16 where i was really winded uh because like th the inception of this came around on a saturday night where i did nine sets and i was like wow there's a lot of downtime in between and i was like i wonder how many i could do and I went home and wrote down. I was like, what if I did this, this, this? And I was like, that's 18. And I'm like, I could do 18 in a night. I wonder if that's possible. And then I looked back at the old record and I found out it was Steve Byrne. I was like, okay, I should try and do this. Then I told somebody I'm going to try and do this. And they go, you should document it. You should shoot it. And then I, as we started to get ready to shoot it, I go, I should schedule more. So I, I really tried to juggle the schedule and figure out how long it would take to get in between these places. And that's how I came up with the 25 number. We actually aimed to do 26, and I couldn't. Because you wanted to double the old record? Yeah, and I <laughs> just wanted so to... make it so hard for anybody to possibly Yeah, compete. and I'm so extreme. I just want... You know, if I could have scheduled 30, I would have scheduled 30. Now, you have, a, you have a, a what I think is a very interesting and different style than just about any other comedian I've seen here in New York, and very different from Steve Burns, who, whose record you were breaking. Like, he does you know, gets up on the mic, tells jokes. You go in there and you destroy the... First off, I will say, and I don't think anyone has ever disagreed with me on this, last per minute, you're like number one that I've seen ever. Uh, I, I, you're going to be self-deprecating, but wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I mean, that's the gauge by which I, I go is just like, okay, I need another... Uh, When's the laugh come? When's the laugh? And that's how I judge it. Last night I did a set where I was incredibly low energy and I started doing a new bit that had no commitment in it and I was so low energy, but it's still getting laughs. So that's that's what I gauge by is laughs. So and, and I think part of the way you do that is you're you're so insanely good at crowd work. It's like you see the entire audience in front of you and you know exactly like this per I could try, you know, I don't know if you're doing this in advance or like you, you say in the, in the, in the um, show and in the interviews about it, that you're very much in the moment, very present for each person, but you basically obliterate the entire crowd. <laughs> like you pick out each person, you figure out what you can, what feature of that person you could kind of exaggerate yeah. and then you start joking on it. And then to even analyze it further, uh, you might imitate them. You might imitate those exact those things that you've exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. I don't think about that at all. I mean, I just look and I'm like, okay, what's funny? And that's it. So I would look at him. I'd go off on his shirt. I'd go off on the way he's sitting. I'd go off on his hair. I'd go off Me? on no, not you. <laughs> Why is everything all about you all like, the time? Don't fuck with me. Uh, yeah, I know. He's such a gangster. <laughs> Old Mordechai over there. Uh, shouldn't you be at synagogue yes. by now? Go to synagogue. God. But you see, that's the thing too, is you'll take some features, you'll exaggerate them, and then you'll use like other cultural references that you'll yeah. combine. Like you'll see some white guy in a hoodie and then you'll say, there's, oh, here's Eminem over here. And then you'll start rapping Eminem lyrics yeah. and make fun of Eminem as if that person really is Eminem. Yeah. So yeah, it's very free form and, and stupid. And I think I acknowledge several times in the dock where I'll say like, my comedy's not good. I go, it's good insofar as it's funny, but it's not, you know, at, at that point, which was, this was shot four years ago, it wasn't overly poignant. There was no, I wasn't trying to shape a political view or a view on the Me Too movement or transitioning. It was all just like really simple stuff to make these people laugh, but it was, it was funny and it was layered. Whereas now it's like, okay, I, I want to ruffle a few more feathers and I want to kind of push the boundaries a little bit more. But yeah, so yeah, so that begs the question, what is good comedy? Like you are making people laugh. And uh, as you've mentioned in a couple places, you're building a certain 
with each joke on the crowd, you're building a certain tension, like you're potentially making fun of somebody. Yeah. So that, that increases the tension in the crowd. And then you have to release that tension with something stupid and, and funny. That releases the tension. Yeah. So, so it is kind of pushing the edge because where is the edge of that tension? It changes. Yeah, that's an interesting point. A lot of people think the edge will be like, okay, I I will do now an Asian accent where I change the R's and L's. And people go, <laughs> that's so hacky. And I go, no, that was hacky in the 80s when a lot of people would do it. But now it's so edgy, people get fired for it. You know what I mean? It's like Shane Gillis lost his job because right. of a joke like that. So you can't tell me that's hacky when people are getting fired for it. So the, the line of edge, I think, constantly changes. And it's like, today I said the R word. I said retarded in front of a porno star. And she was offended by it. And I was like, you, you, and then you look at videos she makes, and you're like, oh, you're offended by a word, but you're gobbling down a massive black penis. Massive. James, his penis was so big. It was frightening. And I go, the penis is huge. And she goes, well, that's not even fully hard. I go, why? Were you talking during it? Uh, <laughs> it was making him soft. So it, it deal with that. <laughs> yeah, and, like I uh, had to explain the joke there. Yeah, I had to. She wasn't that bright. Uh, but, uh, and then she she made, she's like, do you even have kids? I go, yeah, I do. And she's like, I bet your daughter doesn't even talk to you because of what you do. I'm like, because of what I do. <laughs> Look at what you do. Huge. It was the biggest dick. It was so, I like, you saw this dick in her mouth, and your first thought was, she should be doing commercials for Quiznos. You know, it was that type of thing. It was massive. It was stretching her mouth out. All right, so again, obviously, what what is, what do you think people, the critics are saying is good comedy? I... In my mind, really good comedy. And and don't get me wrong. Like, I think I hit on it at points, but I think it's got its finger on the pulse to the degree where, you know, Chappelle's last special and Burr's last special, uh, probably even more. I mean, I thought Burr's was better in terms of craft, but I thought Chappelle is just a naturally funnier guy. Um, they have their finger on the pulse. Everything that... If you went online for a day and read everything that's got everybody up in a in a hizzy, uh, that's the stuff they're talking about. But, but you know, that, I feel like that's media stuff. Like the media is interested in cancel culture, and so of course it's affecting jobs. Like you mentioned, the, right? The Shane Gillis job being sure. Lost. But what are the big things? The big things are race. The big things are sexuality. The big things are money, politics. Right. So I think that to swi and I would I would put those things into the act that or the act the the comedy as it was four years ago, but it wasn't I wasn't banging them over the head with it. Whereas now I do that a bit more, and I do feel like a better comic now than I did four years ago. But you know, I feel like the average everyday person is mostly just worried about money and being alone and maybe health. The same things they've been worried about for thousands of right. years. So then, so then there's politics and news. Yeah, like the news kind of creates what we're supposed to think is important and what we value, but but actually everyone's just worried about money and, and career and health. And if you go by that logic, which is a really rational way to look at it, then yeah, comedy that makes people laugh is good comedy because you go back to the old adage, these people are coming to get away from reality and they just want to sit and laugh and enjoy. And, and that is good comedy to those people. I, I think the more, though, uh, if you look at yourself as a comics comic, then here's the stuff you want to tack on. But I never wanted to be, I just wanted to make people laugh. And if I can incorporate those two things, like there's this upper echelon of what you view ideal stand-up to be, and then there's what the crowd wants to laugh at, and somewhere in the middle there is, is where I'm trying to hit. Somebody was telling me the other day that they thought good comedy always has anger behind it. Like, you look at, like, Jerry Seinfeld's observations, uh, you know, his, his classic observational humor. It's always that he's angry about some stupid thing that he right. points out. It might be a little thing, but he's angry about it. Like, the way they board airplanes, he'll get angry about yeah. it. Or the way they describe it, he'll get angry about Then there's not really... I don't really see anger in your comedy, and yet, again, you're getting the laughs. Yeah. I think... I think that there was anger for a while, but I also think it evolves out of that. And I think stand-up is turning. You look at somebody like uh, Gary Goleman, whose new special, my therapist anyway, said it's exceptional. 
but he was also it, Gary's therapist for a long time. So. It is very good. Yeah. I haven't watched it, but I, I understand. And I've always liked Gary's stuff. Um, I don't think he's an angry guy. I think he's, uh, or he may, yeah, he is an angry guy. I'm sorry. Why would I even say that? He threw another comic against the wall. Uh, yeah, he's an angry guy. But I think the stuff that he's dealing with isn't in an angry way. He's not right. coming out yelling or, or being super angry. He's dealing, he's twisted his anger into depression, which went into self-doubt and now comes out as uh, well-crafted observations about what he went through. So I think anger factors itself in, but it doesn't have to be the pure driving force. It doesn't have to be like Kinnison ranting and and roaring anymore. Um, and, Although Chappelle's and, special, you can argue, was out of anger. He's anger. At, he's angry at this so-called cancel culture and particularly how people have aimed at him and criticized him. Yeah. So he said, I'm going to just take that to the extreme. I'm going to let people, I'm going to say the most extreme things that will anger people because I'm angry at them and I'm going to let them criticize me. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, his perspective. Uh, and you talk about, you know, do you have a, a point of view that you're, that you're able to express? So you, it seems like you, you value his point of view, but not the point of view that you're bringing to the, the club. Well, maybe I'm my own harshest critic. But let me say this. That I did a joke twice now, and it's such a stupid joke. And it comes from a place of anger where there's, you know, you go online and you'll just hear... So many of our friends, their whole thing is like, the president's an idiot, and it's, it's a nonstop litany. So I go on stage, I go, the president's in trouble. Uh, I don't know much about politics, but I heard he got a peach or something, <laughs> and it's the stupidest thing anyone could say, and I'm not lying, 95% of the people in the room laugh at that joke. And so it's this anger of just uh, constantly hearing uh, this this hackneyed rhetoric that, you know, the president's horrible, the president's awful, and then just making this silly joke. So it's gotten, the anger's gone into just pure adolescent silliness at best, and I make this joke, and that gets a laugh. And it's like a dad joke. But I don't, I don't think it is a dad joke. I think, well, first off, Dad jokes might not be bad because there's other aspects of a joke. There's delivery, there's right. your your stage work, your crowd work, and so on. The second thing is there is a point of view, which is, you know, do we always have to be aware of every phone conversation that's mentioned in the news and every little vote that's happening right. in Congress? And I know this is not a little vote, but even then, it's like, does it affect our lives? Like, again, is it going to affect my health, my wealth? Or my ability to to you know not be alone and, and so on. Right. So you're, you're making a point of view that maybe people care too much about all these yeah. things. My therapist would say we all live in a bubble. When I'll be like, oh, this doesn't affect me. Well, he's like, well, that's why the world's not a better place because people think like you and you live in this bubble. And if you instead of living in this bubble, you were more empathetic towards the rest of the world, then the world would be a better place. I don't think your therapist is correct there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people say my therapist is probably wrong. I think he says the same stuff to all the comics all the time. You never. Oh know. yeah, I heard that there was one therapist. Yeah, there's one was... therapist. Yeah. yeah. So so calls what... me by the wrong name and stuff. <laughs> so Ray Romano, uh, I'm I'm a different guy. So you decide to do this 25 sets, and you're planning it all out. Does Comedy Dynamics approach you and say, "Hey, well"? We'll foot the bill. We'll, no, we'll... here's the interesting thing about how uh, show business works. So I produced this on my own with the help of Matt O'Dowd, who's the director. And Matt used to direct some stuff for Comedy Central. I told him we're shooting this. He's interested, so we shoot it. So I, I pay for the shoot up front. He's like, I'll help out with a little bit, whatever he could. And then we get the thing all shot. Then we do pick up shots. Then we go, we got to get an editor. So we go to an editor. Then we're like, let's go halves on this. We feel like it's going to go somewhere. So we go halves on it. It gets done. And then I'm like, what do we do with it? So the usual, uh, you know, management's like, let's get it to Comedy Central, blah, 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 blah. And you're just waiting around and nothing happens. And then I talk to a friend of mine, Mike, and Mike goes, look, I, I'm developing some stuff with Comedy Dynamics. I've gotten a few things to them. Let me take a look at it. He takes a look at it in the very early stages. He gives us some notes. We go back. We get another editor. The editor puts his vision into it. Then we've got something. We send it to him, and he goes, I think they'll dig this. So then he sends it to Comedy Dynamics, and they go, okay, we want to dis distribute it. 
But at that point, you know, everything's already paid for. So when you bring on a distributor, basically you're just slapping their names on it. They get a production credit. And, you know, what have they done? In terms of seeing the project from zero to where it's at, nothing. But they have that capacity because they have the contacts to get it out there and get eyes on it. So that that's how the business works at that I, level. I also think for you, there was probably some validation like oh okay other people are are on the team here they're they're joining me on this ride of trying to get this that this is important they're going to try to get this out here yeah and it's you know comedy dynamics is a, is a good company they're expanding they're doing the new mad about you reboot and the, and you know they they get their fingers into different pies too and i like the fact that creatively and artistically they didn't have any say i like that we were fully in control of it that they weren't like you need to change this 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 and that they watched it and they're like oh this is good people are going to watch this so from there i i like the fact that you know we were able to hold on to the integrity that we had with the project and make it and it wasn't an easy road when we first shot it it was just a puff piece on me where it's like watch me do all these sets and then we were able to make an actual story out of it and and show how relevant the New York comedy scene is and show my relationship with my girlfriend at the time, which then evolved into marriage and having a kid. So that was very sweet, by the way, like her, she's like uh, pretty much crying while she describes yeah. your, your blossoming relationship. It would seem like she loved me so much back then. I'll look back at it and I'll be like, boy, she loved me. And then I'll come home and she'll be like, hi. And, uh, but we're getting along very well now. We, uh, we, you know, we did, Couples therapy together uh, for a Showtime series, and what series? Um, it's called Couples Therapy, <laughs> and the first season of it just came out, and you could see us in the trailer a little bit, but they cut us out of the first season, and they're like, "We'll use you in the second season if it comes around." So then we, we it was very revelatory, and we dug really deep, and I thought I was like, "I don't want anyone to see this because it's going to hurt my brand, which is big time asshole." <laughs> And we didn't <clears throat> we didn't want anyone to see it. And Christine was going through a really tough time. We almost got divorced. We were in couples therapy for five months. And at the end of the five months, on that last day, I, I was this close. My fingers are very close together, if you're listening, to getting a divorce, like in the session while they were shooting. And we didn't. And we muscled it through. And Why? And, what was going on? Uh, she was going through postpartum depression. There was a lot of resentment because I was working and uh, I was resentful because I was working and supporting us. She resented me because I got to work, whereas she had to take care of our child at the time. Uh, there was a lot of resentment happening. And, you know, we, we do the same thing. I mean, we do comedy and, and uh, th there was resentment on both sides. And, and she was up with the baby a lot. And I was like, I have to sleep because I have to do the show and I have to do the sets at night. So we weren't getting along. And uh, and then that last day, we were about to get divorced. We didn't. We stayed stayed the course. And now, you know, we're getting along very well. We're connecting again, and we feel love. But we, we uh, were in this show, and they're like, oh, you're not in the first season. So we're so happy we're not in the first season. And then the reviews for Couples Therapy came out, and they are rave. People love the show. There's never been a show like it. Because it really delves into real situations, uh, and there's nothing glamorous about it. It's just a therapist with these couples. Uh, so now it looks like we're going to be season two of this uh, thing. So, And I cry a lot throughout <laughs> it. I cry, and I didn't want to cry. The first time I cried on camera, I'm like covering my eyes, crying. It's It's really awkward. And it was at a it was at a point in time when I was going through some comedy controversy because uh, fans of my show in Hot Water had made some jokes and some people had interpreted them as threats, which they weren't. And then, obviously, as time passed, we found out that this person was full of crap and they'd made stuff up. So it, we were going through that and uh, dealing with that as Piper was like, you know, a, a real small baby. It was it was difficult. It was really difficult so to go back and see christine in 25 sets i'll always do that as a heartwarming moment and then i'll show it to her and she'll be like i don't want to see that you should have it like just constantly playing like yeah. <laughs> just that scene set up her. a projector in yeah. my kitchen and just play it on a loop it yeah it'd be wonderful so so you're you're doing you're you're in the middle of doing these sets 
you walk into any of these comedy clubs like the stand or New York comedy club or wherever. And it seems like you just go right up on stage. Uh, I'm sure there was some waiting time, but what do you do? You, you look out at the audience. What's your, what's your first thing? You're not doing, you're not doing standard material. You're doing mostly, mostly, mostly crowd, crowd work. work. There was one joke I used several times that night. I think it was how I like to have sex with black women. Um, but yeah, I would walk in and of course I wanted every set to be great because we're shooting all the sets. So I didn't want to have bad sets. Um, and I would go up and just be like, all right, here we go. Here's how much time we got. Let's get into it. Boom, 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 boom. And I hit, but there were some bad sets. You know, there was one where some guy was all high on pills early in the night. Oh, I remember that one. There was another one where it was just like a couple chatty women. There was one that was three people from Amsterdam or something. At the Grizzly uh, Pair, that at was At the that Grizzly one. Pair. And as the shows progressed and the night got longer, and, you know, I would say probably 18 to 20 of those sets were good. Uh, five were probably amazing. And then there were some real stinkers. So... It shows a nice mix, but it is, the number's insane. 25 is an insane amount of sets to do in a night. But now to me, three to five is an easy night. Like three to five sets is an easy night. Is that what you usually do? Yeah. Like, like every Saturday night? I only did three and I was like, this is so leisurely. Huh. Yeah. Where'd you do them? Saturday I was here at Stand Up New York. I was at Westside Comedy Club and I was at Gotham. And it was, uh, yeah, enjoyable. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And... I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and Having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use HIMS from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs HIMS. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So, so, so you get out on the stage and again, you, you, you look out at the audience. What's, what's your, what's your, first, you also have this, this thing with your crowd work. You always are calling out what's in the room. So yeah. if one side's laughing, the other side isn't, you notice it right away. Like I've got this side, you, sir, you're, you're, you seem unhappy. Yeah. And then you, you might make fun of them or you might go on or like, oh, okay, then I, I got you back like later yeah. on. So you're, you're always calling out what's in the crowd. Again, you're finding the people with sort of the most exaggerated features in some way. And then it does seem like you've, you've either got pre, I, 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 I want to say it, but maybe you'll disagree. You have some pre-canned material like, oh, here's this person. I've seen him a hundred times before. I'm going to, this type of person. Yeah. I know exactly what to say to get everyone to laugh. And then other things you're, you're improving on the spot. Yeah. You're also, you're also doing cold reads. You, there was one set where you actually guessed someone's name. Yeah. You know, so Again, like what's what's the mixture? Like when you get nervous, you start to get into the pre-can stuff, you know works. Yeah. yeah, and it's not nervous. It's just like, okay, if I feel like if I take a leap and it doesn't pay off, I'll fall back on that pre-can stuff. Uh, and that's autopilot for me, which I try to avoid because I really feel like when I just go off, it, it's so scary to walk that tightrope, but that tightrope pays off the most. And the audience is aware of it, and they can feel if it's in the moment or if it's pre-can shit. And when it's in the moment, they're almost not more forgiving, but they're they have admiration for what you're doing. They well, can see you're up there with no net, and and they respect that more. But I think even your I'm gonna put quotes right now, like your quote unquote pre-can stuff. People don't know because uh, I've 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 heard people say after your sets, it's how did he come up with that whole thing? Mm-hmm. You know, just on the fly. Yeah, and not realizing which parts were. Oh, that's the art is making it not look like art. Right? Yeah, so they can't yeah. really tell that much. Yeah, and and but I feel mm-hmm. as like a, a, from an artistic point of view, in terms of purity, 
there's a different feeling. This, going up and killing is, is a thing. Uh, going up and trying new stuff and having it fall or, or succeed is a different thing. Going 100% by the seat of your pants is so thrilling because you really have, I mean, the, it trickles into, so let's say my Saturday night shows where I know I have to do well. So even though I'll try new stuff, I know these people are paying top dollar. They need to be entertained. Uh, it'll trickle into that. So even if I go into the quote-unquote prepared stuff, whatever it is, it, there's still reflections of, oh, it, it's in the moment because it's just popping into my head. What am I going to say next? I, I never know. I never – I used to be on stage and I'd be doing a joke and I'd be like, oh, this joke's going to come next. Oh, this, and you're thinking that. I have no idea now. And so, and so like you mentioned at one point – for your first seven, eight years, particularly when you were in Canada, you were telling these stories, you were telling material of, of jokes. What switch that went, that allowed you to go, or that you decided to go from material that you had written to crowd work? Uh, the volume of sets in New York, because you get to do so many, you, you get bored with your own stuff. So even if audiences aren't bored with it, you're bored. And that's that's why you evolve so much faster in New York. But at the same time, you're talking about developing your point of view and, and, and you, you point to comedians like Chappelle or Bill Burr where they have their notebooks fill, filled with jokes that they're trying out when they go to clubs. Yeah. And uh, I feel like maybe you're torn yourself a little between these two styles. Yeah. I mean, I feel there's this, I'd love to be that next Rickles guy, you know? Uh, that just goes out and insults people and makes people laugh really hard. Uh, but there's also, so, you know, I you can't have it both. It's so hard to have it. Grass is always greener on the other side. So I'd love to be that poignant guy like a burr that people look to. But it's also like, look, I, I'd take Larry the Cable Guy's career, you know? He's doing okay. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be slinging antacid if you threw me the right amount of money. <laughs> so, so... Uh, but with the crowd work, uh, I mean, it feels like I would think that that's really hard. Like it's one thing if you think for months and years and you work on these jokes, you know, for forever, like Seinfeld says, it took him 15 years to come up with the pop tart joke or whatever. Yeah. Like, so there's, there's one school of thought that says, okay, we've got to master this style. Uh, but that the crowd work, it, because you're riffing and improving and getting more laughter almost I don't know. I don't know why crowd work gets more laughter, but it it does. Because it's immediate, and people know that. And people like being engaged with. Like some yeah. people are afraid, but you do it in a very your your persona on stage is a little bit hostile but forgiving. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you're gonna attack somebody, but you bring it. You you reel it back really quickly, so they they have time to laugh rather than getting upset. Yeah. At you. And and again, I think. I think that's a that's a difficult skill. Like a lot of comedians won't do crowd work because, like you say, it's jumping out on that tight wire. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. I mean, I say this in the doc too, where I was like, it's fun. It's fun for me, and it's fun for them, and it should be that. You know, they shouldn't have to be hit over the head the whole show. You know, being why why are you not laughing at this because you're too politically correct. You know, I think that there's a a, a nice wave where you can make them laugh at the stuff that they don't want to laugh at. And it's not like you're politically correct. Almost, I mean, again, in terms of point of view, almost every joke you say is not politically correct. Right. <laughs> so you do have a point of view that you're going to push people over the edge. You, there's even one point in the special where you, you say, oh, so, I, I forget the exact quote. You said, "So, oh, that made some people uncomfortable. Other people realize this is satire and they laughed. Yeah. Like you're, you're part of doing the crowd work where you're going over that edge is educating the audience a little bit so that you almost shame them into laughing yeah. at you. Yeah. I mean, the laugh is the end goal. That That's really what it is. It's not, I don't want them to go home and be like, we learned a lot tonight. But, but Chappelle says, uh, he said in Will Smith's uh, show that was on Facebook uh, yeah. called Bucket List, he goes to Chappelle for advice. He's going to do stand-up comedy. He goes to Chappelle for advice. And Chappelle says, better to be interesting than to be funny. And, you know, I feel like you feel your stuff is not as interesting, even though you are going over that edge repeatedly. Right. Yeah, I think I'd rather be funny than interesting. It was which, a, yeah, which is important. Yeah, being again, like what you said, uh, people are going to a comedy club to laugh. 
Look, the, I'm not going to a TED talk. No, and I think that if you're funny, you the, the people are trying to take away that rule. Remember a couple of years ago where people were like, "Hey, that's offensive," and they're like, "Yeah, but as long as it's funny, it's okay." And, and now people are like, "Well, why is that? Why are you saying if that still hurts people, why are you still doing it? Because it's funny." And I think the benefit of people laughing in a public setting with a room full of strangers has so many benefits and and makes what a comedian does a very special thing. But, you know, the people that are attacking comedy are saying, well, it's not that special to make people laugh and feel good. It'd be better if you made them feel good by not using these words and using appropriate pronouns. So that's the trade-off that, you know, comedy is under attack more so than people, the notion of it. I mean, if you pay attention to what's happening online, it's it's people trying to change the definition of what comedy is. What do you think they're they're changing it to? It used to be, if it makes people laugh, it's funny. Now they're saying, well, it can make people laugh, but it also has to be correcting social conditions while you're doing that. So like, for instance, uh, Rodney Dangerfield you don't get the sense that he ever focused on political correctness. He was just very stripped down, set up punchline, set up punchline, yeah. on and on and on. So just making people laugh. Yeah. Uh, and Robin Williams. Yeah. But, you know, people go back and they mention Robin Williams. Well, he would do this one voice for black people where it was like, I'm a black fella. And people go back and get offended by that now. But you know you're uh, I, I you're you're an equal opportunity offender though. Yeah. Like you hit but the, the wasp people, the, the Jew people. A woman goes, "This is offensive. It's racist, and you're dealing with stereotypes." And I go, "Okay, uh, more. Tell me." <laughs> she goes, "Well, you made fun of the Jews and the blacks." And I said, "Well, I'm a Jew, so can I do that?" She goes, "The blacks." And I go, "Are you black?" And she goes, "I'm Dominican." I go. All right, I'll try and come up with some Dominican jokes because right now you just seem offended by what offends you. You don't give a shit that I'm making fun of Jews because I'm a Jew, but what offends you is what I shouldn't be saying. So I called her out on it, and then sure enough, three minutes later, she's laughing at more racist jokes because I double down, I lean in, and she's laughing. And so I stopped, and I go, you're a fucking hypocrite. You just called me out and you said it's not funny. So why are you laughing at it right now? And she was stumped. Right. Because and she again, didn't get it. It was fake outrage. But that's why when, you know, this distinction between interesting and funny, you're definitely doing something interesting. Like you're going, you don't stay within the edge. You definitely go beyond the edge. Uh, you increase the tension for each person to abnormal levels <laughs> And then you quickly do something to release that tension because it becomes so ludicrous yeah. that they all laugh. And like you say, they're, you're engaging them. So it's almost like they have to have some reaction. And, and then everybody around them laughs as well. Yeah. So, so I, 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 just, I just wonder because it feels like even, you know, when I hear you, hear you talk about this stuff, you feel like you're not hitting some intellectual, you know, point that these other comedians hit when... I kind of think you're hitting more of it. Like you're I, going over the edge and you're doing stuff, you're improving on the fly, coming up with hysterically funny stuff. I've never seen you bomb. I've seen every other comedian bomb. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I, I believe that there's maybe 50 really good comics in the world. There may be more. Um, and, you know, my goal is to be in, in that uh, mass of, of really good or great comics. And it's so you can't work for great. Great is an unachievable goal. If you set your goal, I want to be a great comic. You're going to fail in endlessly and it's, you're going to be miserable all the time. But if you, if you say, Hey, I want to enjoy this and make these people enjoy this. And then whatever happens, happens that may happen. Um, but it's yeah, I think I think I'm my own harshest critic, but I also blow smoke up my ass too, where sometimes I'll be like, okay, I've I really did what I set out to do, which is, you know, be one of the better comics in New York City, and I feel like I'm doing that. Uh, and some people would disagree, and other people would say, oh, you're wonderful. So it, it it is a very subjective art form. And I think myself witnessing 
myself doing it, I'm, I'm subjective about that. There's stuff that I like more. I like pushing. I really like pushing and taking something that I know isn't funny and then making it funny. Like now I say I had sex with my wife on her period, but you can't say that anymore because it offends women that don't get their periods because they have penises. <laughs> um, and, and I go, so instead now we have to give it different names that are more PC. So I go, hey, you want to go upstairs and make the sheets look like the cafeteria floor at Columbine? And it's way less politically correct uh, because children died. But it's 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 less offensive than uh, saying women get their periods because trans women don't. You know, so it, it's amazing how it evolves. So there's there's... There's the material, which of course is one component, but there's also then kind of your stage presence, and and you have to have confidence when you say these things. Like if you're if you're sort of nervous, people, oh yeah, people yeah. will be all over they you and kill it. you. Yeah, they'll read it right away. If you don't deliver that Columbine line with some real oomph, it can uh, it it'll fall. They right, like they sense it. Audiences are once. dumb. <laughs> Right, and so so have you ever lost the audience because you didn't yeah, have Yeah, but a... now I'll acknowledge... Oh, boy, I was in uh, Somerville, New, Jer New Jersey. I almost said it French. New Jersey uh, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, and I asked, I go, how many kids do you have? This couple was a black man, white woman, and he goes, two. And then he looked at his wife. I go, are you unsure? Was there an... Eh? Did you forget about one? And he goes, our daughter died in July. And I... Ah, and it just took the energy out, and... You know, I have a daughter now. So a couple of years ago, it, it would have been a different thing. And I go, all right, well, way to bring the show down. And he goes, well, you asked. And I go, I, di I did. Uh, now I got to pick it back up. So now we got to figure a way out of this. <laughs> so there's no fourth wall with me. So it's just the thought and, and the goal is to have the show go well. So then I redirect to another guy, make fun of him a bit, get them laughing again and blah, blah, blah. And then... You know, once we're safe again and we're laughing, I could be like, ah, we got over your dead daughter. Now let's well, all do it. Well, you know? well, but when you went from them, um, after he says, well, you asked and you said your thing, and then you went to the next person, you, you, if you had just, I think the audience would have been able to read if you were trying to, um, save yourself from the show dying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you had to kind of commit to the next person almost as if that prior conversation. Right, but there's also happened. my actual feeling where like, and then I would get angry, you know? So I'd be like, God, this whole side has so much tragedy on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas this side is just a bunch of nerds. So there's real anger and that comes up too. I mean, that's, yeah. Do you exaggerate it in yourself? Like, No, I, I just try and feel what I'm actually feeling, you know? And so, so developing that stage presence, what, what, what did you, did you, what did you do in the part, in the process of developing that? You have like, to, how did you practice that? You have to be okay with silence. Hmm. Uh, and that, that was in the earlier years where you have to be okay with them not laughing so that you can really find your voice and your intonation and, and how you're going to react to something. You have to be learning how to, perform with the silence and create that. That's what longer stories could do as well. It, it helps build up that tension through silence and then release it with a big laugh. But you don't do the longer story style no, anymore. No, but that's the skill set that I learned from doing those stories for years, mm. was being okay with silence. Mm. So if something drops and then, and you know, I want to acknowledge something. If, you know, Sometimes a woman yells out, that's racist, that's there. At a, at a good club, that person would be removed. Like, hey, you're not allowed to, but I want to engage in those conversations because that's something that genuinely intrigues me right now because that's what comedy's going through. There's a lot of hobbyists and people that don't do comedy trying to dictate what comedy should be. Um, I want to engage in those conversations because this person to me was something that I would only get on the internet. And I'm like, oh, this is a real person because most of the time this is only on Facebook where people are like this stuff's not funny blah 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 and I've never encountered someone real mm -hmm. and then later that night it was at Greenwich Village Comedy Club and I opened uh, there was a table of black people and I go hey your laughs matter and uh, someone just goes I'm not okay with that and just yelled it out and I go alright well here we go and so it was two shows in a night where I, did, I go why what's up what, what's your name blah 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 and he was a black actor, so then we just got into that. And then, sure enough, 
two minutes later, he's right back on board. So this, but how'd you get him? How'd you get him back on board? I think I made fun of the fact that he was an out of work gay actor, even though he wasn't gay. I kept pretending he was gay, and he was blowing people to try and get a line on uh, on some Shakespeare upstate or something. And uh, he had this big booming voice. It was it was all very ludicrous stuff, but he did come back around, and and it's so fun to watch. I feel I happens. feel that's that's the thing you do though is that you will will aim at that person to get more and more ludicrous until they can't, their friends around them basically can't help but laugh. Yeah. I mean, there's sometimes where people just get angry and leave. And I would rather that they got angry and leave than stay there and ruin the whole show for everybody else. Yeah. Because there's a point where you can't argue with some people. Yeah, because they're, they're firm. Yeah. Why do they go to a comedy club? Yeah. So, so... You know, also, again, not only do you make, do you exaggerate these features of them and kind of uh, make make fun of it, you, you you draw in all these cultural references, like some Shakespeare festival upstate or whatever it is. Each time you're, you're, you get more and more absurd. Like, it's like you have this massive database of connections and that yeah. you can draw that are funny. Well, I, I like to know a lot about or at least a little bit about a lot of things and and i think that that's where life experience comes in so that you know i i can talk to um sex workers just as easily as i could talk to investors i and i think that that that's that makes for broader appeal and and it makes you more knowledgeable and you can't you know you can't really be a good dumb stand-up you you have to keep learning and, and wherever you get your information from is wherever you get your information from. So when I say, I don't know a lot about politics and the president got a peach, I think that that hits to some people that are like, yeah, we don't give a shit about what's happening with politics right now. Um, it's interesting. Well, why do you want to be a stand-up? <sighs> I love performing. I, I mean, I always wanted to be a movie star and that never worked out. And that's why I started doing stand-up. Uh, and now I can't be a movie star because the stuff I've done doing stand up and doing my morning show. So uh, your your morning show is off the hook. Like the tw two times I've been on it, yeah, it's like so hilarious. But you definitely you and Gino go way over way the over edge. the edge. <laughs> yeah, I've I've put makeup on and played Colin Kaepernick, which is very frowned upon unless <laughs> you're the prime minister of Canada. Um, so yeah, there's that, and I've done. We, you know, we we've said the N word in the past. We've said other slurs, and it's all stuff. And uh, you know, we we've done all that stuff that you know Shane Gillis got fired for much less than we've done. Right. Um, but you know. So do you think that uh, caps you? Like, yeah, I definitely think it. Caps where, where do you think it has? Like, have you seen explicit evidence that it's capped you? No, but I know. If look, I, I can still do mainstream stuff, but if I were to get a big gig like SNL or something, it'd be I, I would expect that call within an hour saying we can't have you anymore. Do you think like um when you're in a big uh theater, like let's say I know you did uh Atlantic City a few months ago, there was like a thousand plus mm -hmm. people. Do you have harder time doing your style of crowd work? Because obviously you can't hit a thousand people. The Borgata's a, a great room because the lighting's so great at the uh it's the music box theater. Uh that's wonderful. I've been in places where you can't see anything past the first row. I'm I'm kneecapped at that. Mm -hmm. If I want to do what I want to do, it's really hard. So instead, I got to just put blinders on and do material. And it usually ends up being old material. And I usually feel unhappy about it. You never, because, I mean, you've had an interesting background. Like, you know, the stories I've heard you tell about what you've done before stand-up. You don't think that that's, you know, filled with material, you know, autobiographical material that yeah. can be funny? Yeah, and it's so, you know, there's guys that I look at like Ari Shafir that do that so well where he can just churn out so much autobiographical stuff. And I know I got to dig back, uh, but it's it's a different part of the craft. You know, primarily I'm a nightclub comic and, um, you know, a joke-per-minute guy. So I got to dig back, I got to sit down and write, and I got to do those old stories to get that stuff out of that the, there's no substitute for hard work in that case well what's what's next 25 sets comes out october 15th yeah um it's it's an incredible thing to watch because you're breaking a world record 
And I know how hard it is to do even three sets a night, yeah. honestly. But you're doing 25. And uh, what's what's next? What do you want to do next? Next, I'm going to do my fourth album at the New York Comedy Festival. I'm doing uh, American Etiquette, which was my second book. So I do it as basically an audio book recording, but with a live audience. And I improv in the chapters. So I'm going to record two shows, and uh, that'll be an album that You Lucky Dog is producing. They're a newer company run by Aaron Hodges. So doing that album, and then I want to do a special within the next year and uh, trying to figure out how to do that right now. So I'm writing and performing with that with that end in mind. And then I'd like to do an In Hot Water movie at some point. That would be funny. Yeah. So what would what would the I have no idea what it is. You have so many yet. porn stars and me yeah. on in hot water. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Uh you know, it with a special, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting crowd work comics that do special like Todd Barry did mm-hmm. the crowd work tour. Judah Freelander's special was all crowd work. Uh Andrew Schultz just uh released on YouTube his crowd work tour. Yeah. So I think it's a thing that's happening that I've never seen before, which is an all crowd work tour. Yeah, I mean, special. I want to do a special. I want to do a special, special with you know no gimmicks and just kind of do an hour of stuff. Um, that being said, I know some people are interested in seeing me do something similar to the twenty five sets doc, where I would do a lot of sets in a night and make that a special at various clubs. And Ray Romano kind of did it with his two clubs, and I think Andrew Schultz did like five. I would do much more extra. I would do maybe 15 spots in a night and make a special out of that. But I feel like you already just you just did that. Well, this is a documentary. <laughs> I consider this more of a documentary than a special. I see. Yeah. Yeah, cuz you, you with each set we we get a joke here and there. We get like two or three jokes a set. And yeah. they're all different. I don't think I I don't remember you repeating, but you said you repeated once or twice. Yeah. Maybe you repeated like I've got the left side. Yeah. And I don't get the right side. Yeah. And I've seen you do it like Left side's Fox News, the right side's MSNBC. Yeah. So you've, you've kind of, I don't know which side was supposed to be not funny or, or not, but yeah. you, you let them figure it out. Yeah. Let me check my notes here because I was writing throughout the, um, uh, no, I think, oh, I like, I, you had one joke, and I wonder if you came up with this on the flyer, if you had used it before. Um, uh, this guy didn't like the use of the N-word Netanyahu. I guess you were saying to a Jewish person, I couldn't tell. Yeah. Uh, so I remember that. Do you know if that was something I'd used before? Or? I think it was something that was in my mind. I may have used it once or twice before. I just always thought it was funny because at that time, Netanyahu was, there was so much heat on him and there was so much happening politically. Obama was still president when I did that thing. And he had, uh, you know, a, a very liberal stance on Israel at, at that point in time. And there was people. Uh, stamping on the Israeli flag. I don't know if you remember that. But, uh, yeah, so it all kind of melded together. I mean, these were all little tidbits that should have melded into a bit, but they were all just loosey-goosey bits that I could throw out whenever, you know? It's and just... again, sometimes you're just you're just calling out what they're doing. Like, you look amused, you're laughing, you seem to be having yeah. problems, you look like you have an interesting story. Like, what's... What's the idea there? You're just trying to kind of like activate each person. Mm-hmm. It's like they're like a sleeper cell. Laughter's contagious. So if those people laugh, then those people laugh. And then the more laughing, you got, then you can get away with more. You know, once they're already laughing, then I can throw in that Columbine thing and they're already on board. And even if they go off, they're not that far off. I can bring them right back. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think this, this special, so going on Amazon... Uh, October 15th, 25 cents. I think this is like a masterclass in crowd work and determination. And by crowd work, I don't just mean how you're improvising everything and riffing and and, um, calling out things happening in the audience, but just your stage presence too. You have the confidence to pull it off so that even if something is not necessarily funny, everyone's laughing. They just, they're laughing with you, at you. Somehow they're on, you, you take them on the ride right from the beginning. Yeah, I feel that too. Do you, uh, one last question about this: When you when you get up on stage, do you let a moment or two pass, or are you like I know you always say give it up for the MC? Do you because I did a trick on you once with that? I don't know if you remember. I knew you were going to say give it up for James, and you were coming up, and I was the MC, and you were like two sets away, and I told everyone in the audience, okay, the final guy, and I said who you were, the final guy. 
as soon as he says, give it up for James, I want you all to boo. Yeah. <laughs> and they did. And then and then you were like, did he he put you up to this? Yeah. Um, but uh uh I forgot what I was asking anyway. I was you were very proud of your making them boo moment. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I was very proud of that. By, I, to make you, <laughs> you laugh. You got swept was, up in your own moment. <laughs> right. To make you, you were laugh. You were shepping naches for that yourself. Was, that, was, that was the moment of the year, the, yeah. the, the comedy moment of the year for me. Yeah. But anyway, I do feel like this was a, a master class in, in comedy, and particularly your style of comedy, which is the extreme in terms of laughs per minute that I've seen. Uh, so... It was a great show. I encourage everybody to, to get it. Where can they get it? They can buy it on Amazon. Where else? Uh, it'll be on Amazon October 15th. And right now, if this is before October 15th, you can get it on iTunes pre-sale. 25 sets, iTunes. It'll pop right up. And they'll, they'll be able to download it from iTunes? Yeah. All right. Then you can watch it over and over. All right. Watch my wife cry, <laughs> tears of joy. I did watch that twice, actually. Yeah, it was very touching. I, I go back and watch that. Okay, my other favorite Aaron moment is when you and your wife were just hanging out outside, and I brought you both on stage to do riff against each yeah. other. And you said it was the first time you were on stage together. I don't think that's quite true, but one of the first times. Was I lying? Well, I think you roasted your baby when. Oh uh, yeah, baby we was roasted her baby <laughs> once, but uh, yeah, my wife and I. So it's, it's, oh, I took her on stage again since then. She didn't like it. <laughs> she felt like I was uh, hammering too much, and I wouldn't let her speak enough. And I said, "Welcome to the workforce." <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Thank Aaron you, Berg, James. Twenty-five sets. Such a pleasure. <laughs> 